Welcome to the Checking In Podcast from the Great Lakes MHTTC. Today's episode focuses on understanding PTSD and CPTSD in first responders, as well as the support services and therapies available for those coping with overwhelming life experiences. Your host is Alfredo Serrato, and today we are checking in with our special guest, Derek Martin. Derek is an independently licensed psychotherapist and traumaologist working in Ohio. Before beginning, please be aware there are references to suicide and other trauma-related topics that may be upsetting to some listeners. Thank you for checking in with us today and enjoy the podcast. Derek, uh, welcome to our podcast today. Uh, Thank you for being with us. I wanted to just ask you a quick question. If you can just share with us a little bit about your professional background. Sure, absolutely. So my professional background is a little bit of a split. Um, Actually, I started out my life in public safety. Uh, Right out of high school, I went to the fire academy, uh, became an EMT and a paramedic. And um, in about 2003, I transitioned into law enforcement as a police officer and worked in public safety, both as firefighter, medic and police officer throughout that time, uh, serving various communities and municipalities. Um, And then about 2008, I was actually injured on duty. Um, Because of that injury, it forced me to leave public safety. And because of that injury, I I really kind of didn't know where I wanted to go, but I knew I still wanted to help people. And uh, counseling seemed to be the best fit. So that led me down my road um, of extra training. I I went to uh, Liberty University, obtained my Master of Divinity and Chaplaincy to, uh, to work with healthcare and then obtained my Master of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, uh, which led me to where I am today as a traumaologist. Derek, as a first responder, you were able to experience traumatic events, and now you're a clinician, and you help heal people. Could you share with us what type of traumatic experiences first responders face on a day-to-day basis? Sure. The traumatic experiences, that's that's a loaded word. Um, for first responders, it depends on what category you're looking at. Most people think first responders, police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics, uh, which is all true. Um, But there's also the addition of emergency room staff of doctors and nurses and practitioners. Um, But in the public safety realm of things, it's very unique, especially for law enforcement. For law enforcement, you know, you're typically on shift for eight hours or 12 hours and you can have absolutely no calls or you can go from call to call to call and those calls can vary. So you can have a uh, domestic violence call and go to a keys locked in a car call and then go to an active shooting call and go to a fight. It's, it's very dependent upon what jurisdiction you're in, but it can be very overwhelming. Uh, in law enforcement, there was always a joke, you know, 90% of our job was sitting around, but 10% was being active. But the problem is, is that 10% being active is usually in, in life or death situations. Uh, and the same with the fire service. In fire service, you know, most fire services run EMS as well. And so you're dealing with car crashes, house fires, explosions, uh, gas leaks, different things, uh, even in recent news, saving a cat out of a cistern uh, locally. So it's, it's, there's nothing normal about being in public safety. There's, there's no routine call. 
And so the trauma can really add up because we know trauma to be anything that overwhelms our body's natural ability to cope with that. And so, you know, our first responders and law enforcement are facing grave situations uh, from car crashes and fatalities to death notifications to sexual assaults and rapes and domestic violence. Everything that we as, I guess, what you would call lay citizens uh, or, or quote unquote normal folk, the things we fear and run away from, our first responders are the ones that are there running into it to help others. And that makes a huge impact on how our brain interprets situations and how we handle those situations. Derek, you, you mentioned coping skills, and I imagine you received a lot of advice from colleagues, friends, and family. I wonder what sort of advice did you receive and was it helpful or, or hurtful? I have to chuckle at that question because when we talk about coping skills, at least back in my day being in public safety, the coping skill was what we called choir practice. Choir practice was all of us meeting up at the local pub and pretty much drinking our problems away or trying to get numb. Um, and even still today, mental health is kind of a stigma in public safety. Um, there's a lot of fears that come with having a PTSD diagnosis or anxiety or depression. Um, we are getting a lot better at that, fighting that stigma. Um, but yeah, you, you kind of get all kinds of different things from mythical uh, treatments to seeing a therapist, to taking medication or to, well, just suck it up buttercup. It, it's, it's dependent upon who you talk to. But luckily, we're now starting to make some changes and strides in the academies and in education systems and the nursing programs to help people uh, with figuring out ways to cope with traumatic stressors um, to prevent the development of PTSD. But it is definitely still a long road ahead. The, the things that you experienced, I, I imagine at some point you said to yourself, I, I need help for myself. Uh, what, what led you to that? For me, I, I was pretty textbook uh, for that era of time being in public safety. Um, nothing led me to it while I was working in it. Um, like I said, it was cop choir practice. Um, alcohol was my go-to. Um, so I was self-medicating. Um, I was trying to, to do anything that I could to escape the, the dreams and the nightmares and the feelings, but I didn't realize really what it was. I just, you know, thought it was part of the job. And it really wasn't until after I got injured that I really started to look at things because after that time of my injury, my life turned for the not so good stuff, uh, kind of led me down a, a very dark and creepy path. And it was actually through that experience of kind of hitting rock bottom that made me see something's got to change. Um, I need to do something. Um, and, and that's still pretty common of what we see nowadays, uh, just in the research and, and working with first responders still. Uh, it's until they hit rock bottom and then they finally decide to come in. And that's the goal of, of all of this is to help first responders kind of normalize what they're going through and, and figuring out that there is help. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. I don't wanna have a first responder or a veteran 
uh, go down the road that I did um, that led to wanting to eat your service weapon. Derek, could you share what drove you to change your profession from being a first responder and then deciding to be a clinician? And was PTSD included in your decision-making process? PTSD wasn't necessarily included in my decision-making process. Um, it was the result of what happened. <laughs> uh, my, my decision to change professions wasn't by choice. Um, and that is something that I, I even to, to this day, still continue to struggle with at times. Um, I was injured. I was forced to leave. Uh, everything that I knew, everything that I was, uh, my identity was wrapped up in who I was in public safety. And it changed overnight. Um, from everything in my life completely changed overnight from that injury uh, to not being able to walk, not being able to hold my newborn child, um, just being in constant significant pain. It, I mean, it was, it was horrible. Um, going through that experience uh, again, at that point in time, um, even being a, a therapist wasn't something that I thought of. Um, I knew just what I was doing was taken from me and I wanted it back and I was trying to fight like hell to get it. Um, fruitlessly because uh, I never would. Um, but again, that, that read, led me down to the, the dark, creepy, crawly road of severe depression, addiction, alcoholism, all these things that just weren't good. Um, but it's when my marriage started to turn. So I, I took the hit on, on losing my career, um, but I really didn't understand what it was doing impacting my mental health. And then when my marriage started to uh, downfall as well, that's when I decided I needed to find therapy. Um, having done talk therapy for such a long time really wasn't, I, I wasn't finding relief. I wasn't finding any changes. Um, until I learned about EMDR therapy. When I learned about EMDR therapy, I, I made a schedule appointment with a, a psychologist and we went through EMDR sessions and it absolutely changed my life. And, and, and I say to this to today, to most of my patients, EMDR is what saved my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for EMDR. And when I experienced that firsthand, I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. I knew that was how I could continue my work being in the front lines, working with first responders and military, working with frontline hospital staff, because I didn't want them to go down the road that I went down. And I wanted them to experience the freedom that I have experienced through EMDR as well, being one of the gold star standards for trauma treatment. Eric, is EMDR something that you readily use in your clinical work now? Yes. So we specialize at traumaology specifically in EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That therapy itself is one of the gold star standards for trauma treatment. And it is one that we see the most effective resiliency and healing rate from in line with CPT or CBT, which are some different modalities of trauma therapy. But the EMDR is, is really significant. Well, one of the interesting things uh, that we always tell folks uh, that are interested in EMDR is you can take, for example, you can take a year of talk therapy and you can condense it down 
and do one month of EMDR therapy. So that comparison is pretty big, um, especially if you're looking for some significant results and looking to eliminate a lot of these symptoms that come with PTSD with the intrusive thoughts, the imagery and the nightmares. Um, so yeah, EMDR is, is a wonderful therapy, um, even that we use it on an international level now. And uh, there's so many different EMDR response teams uh, throughout the nation and throughout the world that are responding to crises all over to, to use this therapy as a means for healing. Thank you, Derek. In, in your experience, um, which are complementary skills mental health providers need in order to treat first responders who experience traumatic events? So my recommendation for any mental health practitioner wanting to work with first responders is to first find some training in how to work with first responders. First responders are really a different breed. Um, again, when everybody's running out, we're the ones running in. And you got to be a little crazy to do that sometimes. You know, when you're running into the bullets flying or the, the house burning, um, that's not something most people sign up for, but we're kind of all adrenaline junkies when there's a reason why we get in it. But there are trainings out there for mental health providers that want to work with, with first responders. And one of the biggest things is learning how to address stigma with first responders. For example, probably one of the biggest battles that I have with most police officers coming into therapy is any type of diagnosis or their fear of, oh my gosh, if I have PTSD, most officers go to this line of thought. I'm going to get diagnosed with PTSD. They're going to take my gun away from me. If they take my gun away from me, I can't do my job. If I can't do my job, I lose my income. If I, and it just snowballs because it's this fear, this stigma that if I have a mental condition, then I'm not fit for duty. And that's not the case. That's one of the biggest misconceptions that most first responders have. There are many officers that I work with that have PTSD. There are many officers that I work with that are on antidepressants and it's not affecting their job. It's not affecting their judgment or their decisions. It's just what's happened to them and they can find treatment through that. And that's one of the greatest things. It's, it's really rewarding to have an officer, um, for an example, a SWAT officer come and they're getting stuck at work, you know, they're getting caught up in thoughts when they're going on active shooting calls or a person with a weapon and they're having flashbacks and they're having triggers, they're able to do their job, but it's causing them physiological changes and stressors. And through EMDR, we were able to eliminate that. And, and I got a, a letter from the officer saying, thank you so much for what you have done. It changed my life. I feel like a new officer again. I have a new lease on life and I love my job even more. And I, I had to chuckle at that because in essence, I'm like, well, all I did was sit there and say, follow my fingers. Okay, go with that. You did everything. I just help you get unstuck. And that's the really cool thing about EMDR and the cool thing about our brain. Everybody has the power and the ability. Sometimes the amygdala just gets stuck and it needs a little help. But the EMDR is absolutely wonderful. So for mental health practitioners, EMDR training is probably the best thing that you can do. 
followed up with what we call interfamily systems or parts work. Parts work will really help any clinician uh, that wants to get involved with working with first responders in military because we are very compartmentalized. That's how we're trained. That's how our brain operates. And if you understand internal family systems or IFS work, it complements that treatment very, very well. And that can really help officers, firefighters, and staffing reduce that physiological response of fear coming to a therapist because it normalizes it. Oh, I'm allowed to think this way, or oh, I'm allowed to have this or that because the world is telling them that they're not because they're getting information from all these places that aren't effective. Let me ask you this question. What can police departments, firefighting departments and hospitals do to destigmatize that so that the, the first responders can actually seek that help without that fear that you mentioned? The biggest thing is starting to educate people. There's so much information out there in today's media world. And unfortunately, it's usually not the best information. Um, but with public safety, the biggest thing comes through building relationships. Police, fire, and EMS are not going to let the outside folks in. You have to really understand them and really be able and willing to walk in their shoes and understand how they look at things and understand their dark humor. But one of the things that has been amazing in Texas, they've started um, working with a, a large metropolitan department down there and actually had all of the administration go through EMDR therapy. The administration saw such a dramatic change in themselves that when the clinicians came in to these trainings, the chiefs, the lieutenants, the captains, the high ranking officers were saying, look, this is what I've experienced. This is what I was dealing with. And this is how it's helped me. That in itself is huge. So I really encourage departments to have some transparency from the top down because most of the time looking from the bottom up, frontline staffing don't see that side of administration. Um, the, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin wrote a book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And one of the, the most famous chapters in that book, he talks about this theory of, and, and it's called quote unquote, bullshit assholes. Because when you go into roll call, after so many years of working in law enforcement, everything the guy at the podium, which is typically the sergeant or lieutenant, is a bunch of bullshit. And everybody beside me is a bunch of assholes. And that's their mentality. That's how they start to develop in some of these thoughts. And what we've known is how it's laid out. Well, if I'm in that mentality, everything that is coming from administration isn't going to make a difference to me. Because my thought is, well, they're not, they don't have my back or they're out to get me or whatever it may be. But when administration comes out and says, look, this is where I was at and has that open vulnerability and says, this is what EMDR did for me and makes it open and accepting, makes them know that they're not going to get in trouble for this, makes them feel safe. It's been doing amazing job and differences in this department in Texas. And 
they're now actually starting to pilot in larger metropolitan cities now throughout the nation. And it's, and it's a great thing, but I really do. I think it comes from the top down uh, of destigmatizing and really inviting in clinicians or professionals that are well-versed in working with law enforcement or first responders to give those presentations. Thank you, Derek. And I would like to kind of switch focus a little bit now and kind of allow you to share, if you could, um, what essential self-care tools do you use as a clinician who has also experienced PTSD? So for self-care, self-care is a huge thing. One of the, the biggest things that I, I really want to take the time to address is what is self-care, because I think so many people get caught up in really what that is. Self-care is anything that brings you comfort or peace or happiness. So it's really doing something that you haven't done for yourself in a while. So for example, a lot of my self-care comes from photography, um, being out in nature, um, playing guitar, doing different things of that nature. But if I don't do them all the time, am I really doing self-care? And so it's being very adamant about scheduling time and protecting that time, even if it's 15 minutes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell patients, you know, if you can, if you love taking bubble baths, but you haven't taken a bubble bath in two months, schedule the time to make, take a bubble bath. And it's amazing that self-care, what difference it makes to their persona and how they feel and the endorphins that are released by doing that. So self-care is really dependent upon the person. Now there's different regulation skills that you can use when you are starting to feel symptoms from PTSD, uh, when you're starting to feel hypervigilant or hyper aroused, there's ways that we can actually reduce that effect of the amygdala. And that can be through different tapping techniques or bilateral stimulation. Um, there's different breathing techniques. Combat breathing is really effective. Um, and so it just depends on the person. And that's one of the things that if you go to any therapist, they should pretty much make that a, there, there's no standardized list of, of regulation skills or self-care skills. You really customize it to your patient, but you invite them into what their experiences are and what brings them joy and help them walk through it. Thank you. Uh, could you share a bit about what growth looks like uh, after PTSD using EMDR? For me, it was kind of night and day. And, and that's, that's typically what we see with patients, um, depending upon what we're looking at. So when we look at PTSD, there's a difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. Complex PTSD being uh, trauma, uh, with early life development and continuing out through a life cycle and PTSD being individualized, not as insignificant, but uh, more traumatic events in adulthood in, in a shorter period of time. Typically with those type of situations, we see a pretty quick turnaround uh, through EMDR, um, you know, anywhere from maybe five to 10 EMDR sessions of therapy um, to where you feel different, you feel lighter, you're not as heavy, your thoughts aren't as intrusive, you're not noticing that physiological response. 
And so when we address those and we teach resiliency and we teach uh, relapse prevention skills and things of that nature, the growth is phenomenal. And, and just like that, that uh, story I shared with the, the SWAT officer, it really does make a huge difference. The only difference between that and complex PTSD is there's just some more stuff that's underneath the surface that you kind of have to sift through. Um, but even with complex PTSD, myself being a survivor of complex PTSD, my life in past compared to where I am today is a night and day difference because of EMDR. And I still do EMDR therapy with a therapist from time to time. Uh, just because I do have complex PTSD, um, it took me a lifetime to get there. It's going to take me a lifetime to get out of it, but I'm in a much better place than where I used to be. And that's, that's the best part of it. Eric, what sort of recommendations would you have for a clinician that treating uh, these you know, different uh, clients, one with PTSD and one with complex PTSD? What, what sort of recommendations would you have in the difference of treatment for, for, for either? Well, with every patient, it's going to be somewhat different. So you do have to be eclectic in the, the approach that you take. Um, EMDR, as we've said is the gold star standard for treatment, but not everybody's ready for EMDR. Um, if I have a patient, uh, regardless if they're complex PTSD or normal PTSD, if there is such a thing as normal PTSD, um, if they're experiencing dissociative symptoms, not because they're dissociating because they have multiple personality, but because they're dissociating because the brain is interpreting information as being so dangerous that it skews how it views things. When we do EMDR, if they start to dissociate, it's not gonna be effective. And so we might spend, you know, with one patient, I might spend four or five sessions teaching them how to notice what's going on in your body, how to regulate your body through polyvagal techniques, through bilateral stimulation, through breathing. Um, or I can have a, a person that has PTSD and no dissociative symptoms, and you know they have a pretty good tolerance, and they're like, yeah, I'm just ready to knock this out of the park. So it's re that, that's really kind of a hard question to answer because it's really dependent upon the person, what they've experienced, um, what kind of adverse childhood experiences they've, they've had. Um, when you're looking at complex PTSD, what's the longevity of that? And, and even with law enforcement and military, um, what's their exposure been? Is there combat exposure? Is there uh, gunfire exposure? Is there loss of life personally as well as vicariously? So there, there's all kinds of different things that take into that equation, but unfortunately it's, it's pretty individualized. Oh, great. Thank you for all your thoughts. Um, and actually I, I wanted to ask you, are, are there any final thoughts that you would leave uh, for our audience? things that you think are important to what you do and how to approach um, either EMDR, PTSD, or even the nature of being a first responder? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, the, the one thing that I would tell folks is if you are in relationship or know first responders, um, be gentle with them. Extend them some grace. The worst thing that you could ask any first responder is, oh, have you ever killed somebody? Or, oh, what was the worst call that you've been on? Those, those, those aren't questions that are helpful. I, I get it. It's very interesting. 
but that can actually cause a flood of information to go through the mind of the first responder and can actually trigger them. And, and that's not what we wanna do. Seek help. If you are experiencing symptoms of PTSD, know that you're not alone. It was very, very hard for me because I thought I was alone. I thought nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can explain this. Nobody can experience what I've experienced. And I was completely wrong. And it had me down to my knees and it broke me. And you don't have to be that way. You don't have to be broken. You're not broken. These things have happened to you. You didn't ask for them. Yeah, it's part of your job, but you didn't ask for them. So you don't have to live that way. There is healing. There is hope. And it can be extremely freeing. So don't give up. Reach out, find help, look for a certified EMDR therapist or a certified trauma professional, and they can help you. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a true pleasure. Um, I hope you join us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. The Checking In Podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes MHTTC, which is funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Before you go, don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes Wave podcast channel on Anchor and the Great Lakes current YouTube channel to discover many more free products and resources just like this. We also invite you to join our online community by following the Great Lakes MHTTC on Facebook and Twitter, and we look forward to checking in with you again on future episodes.